And good evening. Welcome back to Dr. Drill's Making Motivation Podcast. Today is the 21st of September, year 2022. It's a Wednesday. It's been a long day. Started at 5.30, waking up, getting prepared to head on into Planet Fitness. Grab my man Bogey and all my freaking bags of things changes of clothes and toiletries and all this other shit. <clears throat> Head on down to Planet Fitness to freaking work on myself. My friend Pat met me down there. She's a freaking godsend. Let Bogey out of the truck. He wagged his little nub and tail. Kind of curled around to the side like he's happy. His feet, you know... He doesn't know what to do with himself when he sees somebody he loves. He dances across the parking lot. A couple spaces only. Jumps in the back. Pat's car. And off they go for an adventure. Two great friends of mine. People I love. And I go in to punish my physical self. I get on the the bicycle. And I did... uh, 10 minutes and 5 miles on the bike then I did some bench press 3 sets of 20 did a bunch of other shit and I showered up early and head on over to the office for a busy day and it was a, a crazy day you know a day in which I have seen many times before and I prepare myself mentally for I'm, I've seen all these challenges, problems as they would arise. I've encountered them before, and it's never, there's never anything too dramatic. It's just schedules and change and, you know, shit like that. <sighs> Pardon me for the yawn. I also had, after dinner there, my confidant Emily was nice enough to take care of me. She she brought in some sushi and some other items, some pineapple and things like that. Put it in my little office there, so I had something to nosh on. I believe that's Yiddish for, like, snack. And I freaking devoured that. I was hungry as hell. I burned a tremendous amount of calories doing the work that I do, both physically and mentally. So it was a good day. You know, I helped a ton of people as usual. I'm very thankful for the opportunity to do that. I had a friend ask me, when when was it that I knew that I was an empath? Was I always the way that I am? And you might recall if you've tuned in to my conversations that I've actually read that it's, it means something about you. It's kind of like a narcissistic trait when somebody declares themselves an empath. It basically means like you feel other people's pain and not everybody can do that so I feel other people's pain. So I'm special, not like the rest. And while I do feel that that it's accurate and truthful that I am specially attuned to how other people feel and I want to help them, I think most people have a similar trait, yes, but it just... I cultivate a lot of that doing the work that I do. I replied, you know, when did I know I was an, I was an empath? So I'm, look, I'm not a narcissist either, but um, 
I spoke a little bit about a book that I'm reading right now. It's basically called Human Nature. And this guy, Robert Greene, he, you know, I'm only in the early chapters, but he's basically talking about how we're all a little bit narcissistic to some degree, regardless of how selfless we like to think of ourselves. We are kind of, sort of, at least a little bit out for our own best interests, as we should be, but I guess saying that nobody is completely, nobody is completely um, selfless, we, we have to, you know, consider our own needs, um, but it said that um, on, a sca- on a spectrum of narcissism, we all are fall somewhere on that spectrum. Um, all this to qualify myself as imperfect and am I an empath? I, I, tr- I do believe that I am. I, by nature of the work that I do, how could I not be, you know, and be good at it? you got to give a shit about people. It's my job to care and to listen to people and to, um, to help them with my hands and my heart. That's, that's what I do. And I found it to be some of the most rewarding work I've ever done. Um, I replied when my friend asked about why, you know, when did I know I was a, an empath? I think it's because when I, in my early life, I wanted to be, like most young men, I wanted to be an alpha. I wanted to be strong. I wanted to be fast. I wanted to be... Um, not bullied. I wanted to rise above to be one of the strong ones so that nobody's going to call me names and big strong guy, big muscles, don't fuck with me sort of thing. Like, you know, hey ladies, you know, come this way if you want to be with me. I was never like that. But I'm saying like, I wanted to be like most men are genetically programmed. I wanted to be an alpha, an alpha male. Just so I didn't have to worry about things. I didn't have to worry about being picked on. I didn't have to worry about being, you know, um, dominated or abused physically or mentally. Um, I would, you know, women would find me attractive, maybe. all the things that matter on a primal level to a man that I can provide for my family, that I can protect myself and others, that I can, you know, know, think about any group of animals, primates, gorillas, lions, you know, it's like, you want to be the fucking protector, man. You want to be the lion king. And so that's what I set out to do. So I joined the Marine Corps. And they kicked the shit out of me. And they challenged me and pushed me around and kind of abused me and brainwashed me simultaneously um, in completely legal, sign-your-life-away manner. You know, this is something that a lot of young men go after. You know, you want to be challenged. You want to be one of the best. You don't want to be fucked with. You want to be able to destroy your enemies, flick them away like a fucking, like an insect or something. So you join the Marine Corps. 
and they break you down and they build you up. And that's true. And it's tremendous experience. Many books have been written and stories told, countless stories, some of them true, about life in the Marine Corps, life in boot camp, all that stuff. But so I went, I sought those characteristics, you know, that of a warrior. For most of my life, for about half of my life. And then as I accomplished many of those goals, I mean, I wasn't always the strongest or fastest or best looking or any of that shit. Of course, you know, but I developed myself in such a way that I was, I was at the top percentile of competition, let's say. I, in my mind, if not in reality. And I got there, and then I said, you know what, this is awesome. But I looked around, I saw a lot of men who were kind of broken. You know, they were playing warrior for much of their lives, so they went through marriages and had substance abuse issues, or maybe they got injured while on duty or fell out of favor with a command and passed up for promotion or whatever. It was, you know, like the military, everybody looks at, everybody holds us up as like in high regard when it comes to, you know, thank you for your service and all that shit. But a lot of the time the military sucks. You know, you don't like um, socialism. Well, guess what? That's what the Marine Corps and the military is. It's a, it's a big socialist experiment that fucking works really well. Everybody dresses the same, everybody does the same work, workouts, everybody helps the, uh, the cause to fulfill the mission, and even at your own peril, up to including your own death, demise. So, I looked around, I saw a lot of broken, fragmented men, and they weren't that much older than me, it could have been another enlistment, another two enlistments, I definitely would have been over there in uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, and I wasn't scared to do that, but I was just kind of like, you know what, I've done a lot of these alpha male things, I've pursued this, this line of work, this way of life, and now I realize, like, you know what, I, I've, it's almost like an imbalance, maybe I should learn how to, or try to help people. And I've spoken about, you know, I was I served in peacetime, so I never put rounds downrange in, in anger, but um, a shitload of them in training. But one of those peaceful missions that we went on was to Cuba. We helped the balseros or the, the rafters, people that are just trying to cobble together some kind of buoyance buoyant something, fucking raft made out of wood, or inflatable this and that, or whatever, take a boat, you, you know, they tried to get out of Cuba, because it sucks over there, and they want a better life in the land of opportunity in America, right, so, we went over there, and we patrolled around these tents, full of people, families, men, women, most of them good, and there were some who, ultimately, we did not let into the they were processed and segregated so that those bad apples didn't spoil all the dozen or the thousands or whatever. There were various camps. And we worked in Campamento Alpha, 
and that's where I learned a little bit of my, my first words in Spanish and I met some really nice people and I just I observed that people are, are basically people that everybody's got the same problems you know they were all human and, and this was nothing that I needed not to get on the you know theology path but I mean it was just obvious you know these people were without a home they were living in a green like freaking green canvas military called GP tents general purpose like big heavy canvas hot canvas tents in the fucking Cuban heat humidity they're hot as balls and they live on cots in there and they would make things uh, we would cook for them. There was a big chow hall. They'd go through there. They'd eat. And we basically provided everything for these people. And they would, you know, eat and excrete and hit the showers and live their lives in these camps and write home to their loved ones and, you know, dream of a better life. And I just saw that. I was like, man, this is fucking awesome. You know, I hope that these people not bad people, they're not the enemy, they're not, this is a good mission, I think that was one of the first things that I saw that I was like, wow, this, you know, how the other half live, people are living in squalor, they're living in, you know, bad conditions, under tyrannical rule, there's violence and all kinds of things in their society, and I'm part of the good old U.S. of A., and I got this, you know, fucking boot shined up, and camouflage unit. Uh, uniform, and I'm part of, you know, I come from America, you know, I'm here to help. I always love being the good guy. And who would not, you know? You ever meet people who, like, they, they always root for the bad guy? I wonder what that says about them. I mean, it could be anything. Like, maybe it's professional wrestling. You vote for Hulk Hogan, or you vote for the Iron, you root for the Iron Sheik, or you know, Bobby the Brain Heenan. Usually vote for the, the hero, right? We love these hero stories. It could be the fucking Iliad and the Odyssey. It could be, you know, Greek mythology. It could be Shakespeare. It could be whatever story, you know, where, wherever it started. Now, biblical tales. We love a hero. Uh, the human beings, they, they ultimately, we want to be that hero. We want to take people's pain away. We want to help them. And it feels good to help people. So, sitting at some of my little posts that we would walk, I would always say hello to people. You know, if I, I would always make sure that I was cordial, that I shake people's hands, that I was kind, that I would you know, firm and all that stuff, but I, I remember, and I might have disclosed this before, we relieved an army unit, there was an army battalion that was there when we showed up to Guantanamo Bay in Campamento Alpha, and they had told the, um, the villagers there, the Balseros, that they weren't going to have it as good when the Marine Corps took over because we were a bunch of fucking baby killers and dickheads and we are going to be sadistic and 
and I think that they learned as well, <clears throat> of course, that that was not the case. Yeah, Marines are tough guys, warriors with a chip on their shoulder. Absolutely. That's part of it. And that's a fair stereotype. But um, I made sure that, at least in their interactions with me, they knew that I was there to help. And this is a peaceful mission. I was one of trying to be one of the good guys. I had a lot of other people that behaved the same. So that was the beginning, I guess, maybe. I mean, if I go back further, was there something that happened in my life that made me feel like, you know, to take care of people was worthwhile or that to be a good guy? Something something that that sticks out. I remember mentioning this in previous podcasts. I remember, and this is crazy, it's typical Aaron Oberst stuff, but in our little den, we had a, a little shit room that every house has where you, there's a sewing machine and there's uh, you know craft st- supplies and storage stuff and um, just all the things that you can't use. And then there was even this place under the stairs, my mother would call it under the eaves. And there was all kinds of like uh, Halloween costumes and junk and you know old clothes and, and decorations and stuff. Stuff that we just wanted out of the way. And sometimes my sister and I would go under there and we would look at the light that would shine, that would come through the wooden stairs. And we would, it was a cozy spot. We just hang out and it smelled like that. It smelled like Halloween costumes, old rubber plastic Halloween costumes and yarn and stuff. Build a little fort back there, but it's beside the point. Um, In that den, there was a little electric keyboard. And it was a tiny little thing. You plug it in, it would hum like most early, earlier, you know, 40, 50 years, 40 years ago. Electric, um, it was one of the first electric synthesizers. It's a little piece of shit. And when I pressed all the way to the left, it would make a sound like. Like, da-da, here he comes to save the day. Like that sort of octave. It was a decidedly positive sound. And I I loved that, and I, and I made the contrast, the comparison between that sound and the villainous one all the way to the right. It was like... Dun, versus dun, dun. <coughs> as in dun 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 who done it you know there's here's the villain you know cue the villain here he comes to save the day dun 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 the hero meets the villain I, I remember that as being like very attractive, the hero sound, and then the villain sound. It was fucking scary, man. It's like something that I had heard in a, you know, in, when Bluto would, sh- would show up in the Popeye, you know, try to bully Popeye, or uh, some antagonist would come in and into a cartoon or, or a show, or, you know, watching the 
big one we watch every year was The Wizard of Oz, right? So the Wicked Witch. Imagine that screen, that uh, the soundtrack to those those movies, and how they they really personified hero versus villain. So I'm sure that's something you'd experience as well. But I remember that. Of course, there were times in my life where there were people that I was picked on or I was made fun of or everybody's had that. People that we remember, situations that you remember fondly, situations that you were you know, embarrassed about or uneasy about. I had some real fucking bullies that I could tell you and have told you stories about in previous episodes. And there were terrible moments sort of where you were like scared to go to school or you were embarrassed you'd avoid somebody if you saw them in the hallway in school or you know somebody in the you know who was a, a better wrestler than you would rub it in your face and you know, tell you how bad you sucked or whatever some kid in the fucking roller rink one time I couldn't really roller skate too well and he called me some name and then he skated off and I took my roller skates off and I just ran around the rink bare feet chasing them and grabbed them and, you know, kind of even the score. There was all kinds of this sort of stuff. I'm, I'm sure in somebody's story I was the, the, the villain. I, I don't, I'm not sure about that. I'm going to give myself a little bit of credit. I always kind of feel like I always try to do the right thing. I can go back remember my childhood friends and some of the antagonists that would come around. There were a lot of what we called big kids. And when I was growing up, BMX was was huge. So you could find yourself out in the woods or in some some lot. There was a lot of development happening in our community. So there would be people... be empty lots there where there's construction crews coming in and out so we'd build we'd take their wood a couple boards and a, you know, a piece of plywood and build a ramp or do something like that build a fort and then the big kids would come and find your fort and they would chase you out of it and they you know fuck around and tear it down and do all kind of stuff like that you didn't want to be caught by the big kids around the fort you didn't know that what could happen we felt probably felt our mortality on some level, and it wasn't impossible, and like, sort of kind of like, out of uh, a story like Stand By Me, remember where there was a, was a, Kiefer Sutherland was in there, and he was like a real, like dangerous guy, who was a, a young adult, driving, and smoking cigarettes, and drinking, and really making poor choices, and chasing the young kids around, and bullying them and shit. That was real growing up for me, especially as a young man, again, because you're developing and running to kids who are stronger and they would, you would try to find yourself, whether it was on the field of play or down the park, some kid takes your ball or you know, takes your ice cream money or whatever the fuck it was. It, it was kind of scary. It was, a, it was an interesting time to grow up though and I know that people who are older 
have different stories that are far more dramatic, but um, everybody's got their stories. But heroes versus villains was very prevalent on the school bus, um, in the schoolyard, um, in sports, in the Marine Corps. It was like, came to, it culminated for me. And that's where I was like, you know, at some point I was like, fuck it, man, I'm a survivor. I'm going to turn my attention to everything. To that. Martial arts, guns, knives, survival, you know, watching all these Western movies where you're bringing um, the, the outlaws to justice, right? That's another theme. It's like, there was always like outlaws that came in and they were just bad dudes and they were coming trying to tear up the town. They were coming, they were mistreating the, you know, the, the, the store owners and they were, you know, coming in drunk and shooting their pistols in the air and they would go and retreat to some hideout and come in to the town on raids and threaten people and, I mean, it was, it was crazy. That, that western depiction of, like, people trying to, like, normal folk, normies trying to be just live their lives and improve their, their situation in life and villains, outlaws coming in to disrupt and to take what they wanted and to mistreat people and to, you know, damsels in distress uh, tied up on a railroad track, that sort of depiction, right? I mean, that's that was a big part of my life growing up. I, I loved watching westerns. Uh, from Bonanza to shit, you fucking name it, man. Pale Rider. Outlaw Josie Wales, all the John Wayne films. It was a time for heroes. And it's like, you wanted to be John Wayne. You wanted to be Clint Eastwood. You wanted to be fucking uh, um, Charles Bronson. You wanted to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. You wanted... These people were strong, they were respected, they were well-spoken, they were intelligent, they always got the girl, they, um, they could not lose, they had such an advantage, so that was like, I think that's every man's, young man's ambition, just because if you, if you're at the mercy of the pecking order, if you're a weak, comparatively weak or at a disadvantage, you're gonna you're gonna feel it, man. It's it's not a fun place to be. So whether it was in you know Lacey Elementary, Middle or High School, or Paris Island, South Carolina, or day to day in society, just the antagonism that exists between people. I, I took note that it was better to be a hero than a villain. It was important to be prepared for every contingency. And that meant working your body and mind physically to the limits so that you could come home with the victory over hard times. And so that's what I've done. It's still a bit of what I do with my early morning workouts and these podcasts 
I am putting to work uh, the warrior ethos, the warrior spirit, Bush. <clears throat> excuse me, Bushido, which uh, essentially means the way of the warrior. Right, the way of the warrior, the martial way. There's uh, different disciplines that I studied over the years. Karate, karate means the empty hand. Uh, judo is the art of gentleness. Jiu-jitsu, the gentle art. And I studied, um, facilitated by my sensei, Sensei Chris Rosenthal, God rest his soul. Um, that's another thing, watching all the martial arts shows. All the um, Rambo shows. All those come from behind, you know, a field of dreams, right? all those cinematic depictions of um, somebody rising to the occasion. What is better than that? And so I kind of bought into that lock, stock, and barrel. And I think most of you listeners did as well. And so the road that I have been on, the path that I have been on, and I continue on, you know, it's interesting. Every day, <clears throat> there are new challenges, and I use all the previous knowledge and experiences to try to better my position in life and respond in a way <clears throat> that is... Um, appropriate to the situation. I want to be happy and I want other people to be happy. A couple little side notes here. Some other talking points. This Human Nature uh, book that I'm, I'm listening to on Audible. It's pretty damn interesting, man. Talking about um, nonverbal cues, and they say that like the vast majority of the of our communication, like ninety something percent of our communication is nonverbal, and that what we are doing for the most part is we we listen to people. And simultaneously, we are formulating our response. That's what we're spending our time doing, communicating. We don't always see these nonverbal cues. They could be the, the body language of a person. They could be some, you know, um, a posture that somebody assumes, let's say, when they're happy or sad or scared or brave. Um, they, it could be the way somebody stands, 
as their station. It could be the way they open their eyes or they purse their lips or, you know, think about it. What is a, if you really think about it, what is a person in these various situations? How do they appear? How do they present? Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and, and, and just by their body language, you learn that, okay, the conversation is probably coming to an end now. I should probably stop talking. They're not hearing me. Or when you're in a, a squabble with somebody, do you, what are the, how do you posture? What is your posture? What, what is your facial expression? Um, how do you stand? How, what, what tension are, uh, are your muscles assuming? How do you feel in terms of your, you know, your disposition? Are you nervous? You know, when you're happy, when you're sad, when you're angry, when you're nervous, when you're um, grieving? What do people look like? And I, I think that you'll, they'll be, um, you could probably draw an emoji and, you know, what would the posture look like? What would all these aspects, <clears throat> how would it appear when somebody's stressed out? You probably have their hair all frazzled and their eyebrows kind of stern looking and their eyes squinted and their, their jaw um, muscles, they would be tensed, their teeth clenched, their neck muscles tight. I'm especially attuned to all these physical things because I put my hands on people all day long. So I know a tight muscle. I know a restricted joint. I, I can, I know what, when somebody's stressed out <clears throat> and we see this and we deal with this in people so often that we off edges, we kind of lose sight of it. And so the vast majority of communication, we don't even receive, but how cool is it to be just to be aware that there's like frickin' the vast majority of communication is happening without a sound, without a word. And we need to be attuned to that. So for, you know, for the next couple days, I'm going to be, um, <clears throat> I'm going to be doing that. I'm going to be studying people a little bit more and studying myself, try to develop more self-awareness of how I feel and how I'm, um, what my body is doing when I'm having a conversation. Remember I've said in the past when somebody is talking to me and they're, and I, I can tell I'm a good listener and obviously it's my job and people, so people know that it's a safe place to, to talk to me, but I can tell that people know I, there's something about the way that I interact with people that puts them at ease. It's obviously something that I've developed an aptitude for doing in my line of work. And it also, it's something that comes from my heart, for lack of a better source of it, you know. I care. So it must be, I wonder what it is about my body language or my my being that uh, that it is that people see and how they how they'll you know, tell me anything or and they know that they can talk to me. I think that that's that's wonderful. It's an honor. It really is. And uh, that would that compels me to continue doing my job. You know, I've always say to anybody who listen that I you know. 
the end of the or beginning of the week or beginning of a busy day. I'm stra- I'm I'm anxious. I'm I'm ready to jump into action, but I'm also I know that I got to be on my toes, right? I know that I got to be prepared. And at the end of a week, I'm I'm smoked. I'm tired. I'm depleted. But I'll always say that uh, it was very fulfilling and. And it's an honor to do the work that I do. So that's a little bit of an elaboration on the um, the hero versus villain and the source of empathy within me. I don't know if I captured that well enough. And that's that's my version of it. And I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of other things from you know childhood leadership that I received or didn't receive, nurturing, nature versus nurture, people that were in my life, teachers, um, friends, the journey. It's quite something if you think of all the additive experiences that we have all had, how they made us and how they break us and how we use these, hopefully, to become an adult, right? You got to fly the nest. That's their hope as a parent that we can prepare our children to, to be ready, to be able. And so that's that's not just a, you know numerical adulthood. That's forever, constantly learning. And trying to improve. Being happy. Being satisfied at some point in our lives. With having developed. Gone in the direction that we want to go. Being satisfied. Being, you know, like it's enough. You know, I, I do my best. I look at myself in the face, in the mirror. At the end of the day. And I like who I see. You know, to be, have some degree of satisfaction. I think we should all have that. We all deserve to have that. To like who we are and to be proud of the person that we're developing. And to understand the you know the mistakes along the way and how they rerouted, you know, redirected you to improve or you know, our failings and our victories. There's a lot to unpack. And I'm going to cut it off there, but that was a sincere explanation at fucking 9 o'clock at night of how I became empathic. The anatomy of an empath. best I can surmise that's how it went down that's how it's going down we'll talk more tomorrow (laughs)